Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this, our 10th episode, uh, talking about stewardship of our Sabbath School from Home podcast. Very glad that you have decided to join us. My name's Cameron. Yeah, g'day, everybody. Ken here. Luke here. And I'm Lachlan. Now, um, <clears throat> I am singularly ill-qualified to uh, take part in this discussion for uh, two reasons. Um, one of them is uh, that I'm exhausted, and that's because of the second reason, which is that I had my last day at work today, uh, at least last day of the work that I've been working at for the last seven years. And today's discussion is meant to be on saving for retirement, and quitting your job is not a good way to save for your retirement. Well, but th- that's, that's <laughs> early retirement, isn't it, Cam? I have retired, Cam, yeah. Oh, well, congratulations, Cam. <laughs> Enjoy your, your life of leisure as a country gentleman. I guess I guess you could say everyone retires on Friday, don't they, until they re-enter the workforce on Monday. But um, uh, until Tuesday, when I pick up relief teaching, um, which I have lined up for me. Uh, so yeah, that's where I am. Uh, Locke, do you want to kick us off this uh, week and take us to a passage from the uh, lesson you had one singled out, and I forgot to write it down. Yeah, no, I've got it here. So the lesson's topic is called giving back. Um, and of course, we've been speaking a lot about giving uh, all through the episodes of this season. And, and so that bit's not new. What, what, the, what is a slightly new emphasis here and a slightly new angle to think about giving is more specifically, as Cam has alluded to, in the context of, um, you know, the, the latter stages of life. The lesson opens this uh, discussion just with, the, with amusing um, as we near the end of our earning years. Our financial focus turns towards preserving our assets in anticipation of the end of life. So that's the basic kind of scope here. I guess there's retirement coming in here. I guess there's issues of, um, you know, dying with wealth that you can't take with you (laughs) into whatever comes next. And so where to leave that, how to leave that, how to allocate it, how to think about that. That seems to me to be the context of the discussion. And the lesson points to Luke chapter 12, where there's a parable of the rich fool. So why don't we read this? This is Luke 12, uh, and we'll start in verse 13, and we'll read verses 13 to 21. I'm going to load it in the uh, King James Version lock only because uh, there's a turn of phrase that I really like. Ah, okay. Well, I'll start then at 13, and here we go. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where uh, to bestow my fruits? Uh, And he said, uh, this is, uh, will I do? I'll put down barns and build uh, greater barns, and there will I bestow all the fruits of my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. <laughs> You, you see, I've got a. Uh, you read that story, and you say, "What on earth was meant by the phrase preserving our assets in anticipation of the end of life?" Isn't that precisely <laughs> what this story 
is speaking against? Well, it's sort of, because what this story actually very explicitly isn't talking about is somebody who dies expectedly at an advanced (laughs) age. It's very specifically about someone who dies an untimely death, unexpectedly. Mm. It's not actually relevant to um, the sort of planned... um, what is the actual word that it's used for now? Legacy giving mm-hmm. that uh, that the lesson is talking about. This, this is a very different scenario. And actually, now that we just read it, I kind of have quite an issue with it. it well, I have an issue with reading it literally, right? Um, and, and, and I think it can be somewhat interpreted by the final verse. But just why he wasn't expecting to die. He was expecting to use that. He wasn't just storing it up and going, I'm never going to use this. Mm. He was expecting to use it to live off, which is what everybody does with their income. Yes, except that he was expecting to use it to live in a particular way. Um, well, sure. And, and um, let me say, that particular way is the way that I think all Western capitalists would, uh, at least perhaps the middle class ones, um, would seek to pursue the, the values of our society are safety, security, and comfort. Hmm. Uh, now, um, mm. th- there are other values. There, there are other values such as uh, individual autonomy without accountability um, and, and other things like that. Um, but th- th- these things that he wants, soul, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years, take life easy, Eat, drink, and be merry. That sounds like what we intend by retirement, even if it does mm. involve a caravan it, it or a motorhome and like retirement. It'd be yeah. It's a whole soul hashtag live your best life. Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> well, so the the question would be then if his intention in saving up the grain was actually to use it to feed the poor, and that's what he was going to do, and he wasn't going to take life easy. How would the story change? Because he's still done exactly the same thing. Presumably he still dies in the same way and he doesn't yeah. get to give the grain to the poor. But maybe maybe he's left a will in which it does get given to the he, poor. He left, it, he left he left he left um trust services approached him and he left it to the church. Uh well um uh I'm going to make a suggestion. Uh, two observations. Uh it's not desirable to be a fool. But being a fool doesn't necessarily mean you are wicked. So there's not a suggestion of a great moral failing, just a a failure of insight. Now, I think there is some vague implication that he's not using his wealth wisely. But just as it's written... The last verse is uh, quite explicit. Well, which verse is that? Uh, This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Uh, In the translation I'm currently looking at. Okay, but there's no suggestion that the man necessarily misses out on he just got it wrong he he was a fool yeah i don't know i i, I sort of think the the bible's the bible when christ says you're a painted whitewashed tomb and a full of dead men's bones or a pit of vipers he seems to be quite capable of being explicit when he wants to be and this one is is fairly muted mm. i i would be interested to find what the uh the original language word was for fool, because you recall that Jesus said, um, uh, "If you call, uh, you know, your brother a fool, uh, then you're condemned to hell." Um, 
so okay. maybe it's a stronger word. Well, it might be. Uh, my second contention was that um, it is not so much a parable about the use of funds as it is a reminder of life's fragility. And his implication is, if you remember that you are not here forever and your life might be over at any point, that will have an effect on your attitude towards possession. I think that's a really good point, Cam. And now that you say it and I look, I've just switched to a slightly different translation and I look at the verses again more closely, this is actually a much better story to have talked about last week rather than the ones we did argue over. (laughs) Because it is yeah. about covetousness. covetousness. <laughs> and we've still got trouble with that word. Covetousnessnessness. <laughs> it's, it, it starts by someone demanding that they receive a share of inheritance and Jesus mm. helped them to obtain it. And, and that's, that's specifically coveting your neighbor's possessions, which I believe there's a commandment against. Mm. You know, my, I like the definition of covetousness. We sort of arrived at circuitously. Um, covetousness is not so much the wanting, but feeling you deserve it. Um, so, you know, I might want, I, I might look at a boat and say, that's a nice boat. Mm. But that's a long way from saying, I deserve that boat. And getting that boat is an end which justifies any means. Mm. You know, there's that, there's that element of entitlement which makes covetousness wrong in a way that simple admiration isn't. And this guy feels entitled to com- a comfortable life. Mm. Like he's like he somehow deserves things to go well, and um and the he's it, for this reason he is a fool, and um that's the that's the sense in which I meant that um there might be a moral element to the story, but um this person has made perhaps the wrong moral decision because he does not appreciate. Well, well you said the wrong moral the facts decision. of life's fr- fragility. He is he like, is like the moral decision the wrong goal. A, a self-defeating goal, a pointless goal, and the yeah the point the reason why it's uh, pointless is it can be argued. Uh, this is what I was trying to say. Uh, the man makes the wrong decision. You can show it's the wrong decision without recourse to moral argument. You can say just on basic matters of fact, he doesn't get to take all his wealth with him. Hmm. So there's an element of there's an element of silliness that is done, not just wrongness. Yes. In this one example, but there are there are there are many people who who, who commit the same silliness that this man had, and, yeah. and we there is an argument to be made, which would be an interesting discussion, that we're all guilty of it. Our entire yeah. society, I'm sure we are. Is the very basis of our yeah. understandings of employment and retirement are yeah. this fool's foolishness. Um, but but here's here's the point I was going to make, Cam. There are many people who make the same mistake in this world who don't die untimely deaths, who do get to use what they've laid yeah. up and live a life of eating and drinking and being merry and ease and contentment. It's still it's still just as silly though when they die, right? But this because, parable I mean, no one... doesn't illustrate the silliness of that outcome. Well, it does because no one dies. Well, at least very few people die thinking, "Well, I've now experienced the full breadth of all things that could be experienced, and I'm ready." Like old age creeps upon us all. So this is a metaphor and an extreme example for... It's like the students telling me that if I crashed in an aeroplane, I might die before I was ready. Well, I'm pretty almost certain... I hope that I die before I'm ready. I'd be worried about getting to a stage in my life where I thought, right, I'm ready to go now. Um, you know, life is kind of rich and wonderful. There's uh, So um, it, it is a more extreme case. Early untimely death is an extreme case, but sort of any death is in a sense untimely. There is... 
there is so there's a couple there's two things um i was just looking for a quote that the lesson shared about a little anecdote about a, a wealthy billionaire who's who once declared that he would know that he had lived right if the check for his funeral bounced in other words he'd know that he'd got it just right if he managed to spend everything on his pleasure and have nothing left when he was no longer around to enjoy it um so that's that's one example. That's a sort of hedonistic splurging of of the blessings that have been uh, bestowed. Can you just check your translations in verse sixteen? I'm reading the New Living Translation. A man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops, and he said to himself, "What should I do? I don't have any room." There's the implication, it seems to me, that it's a surprisingly good yield, and it seems to me that the implication is that it's a surprisingly good yield, not because he worked particularly hard for it. It's it's just yes. one of these events of good fortune. And I think that's part, if I'm right in that, that's part of what is being critiqued here, because he has been a recipient of good luck, basically, and has felt the need to focus all of that back in on himself. And, and you know, the, the parable is led into by Jesus saying, beware guard against every kind of greed. Um, it's a particular kind of greed. It's different from saying, I've worked hard for these things and I've planned as a responsible steward to be able to put this much as, uh, you know, away so that, you know, um, to s- sustain myself. That's perhaps slightly different from just sort of saying, hey, look, I had pretty good reins on my field and due to the hmm. favor of the gods, I'm in a great position. Ha ha, I get to enjoy it. Suckers to everyone there's, else. There's a sort of a, of, of an interesting, almost a in a macabre way, a sort of fun symmetry um, to what I would call the vicissitudes of life. Um, uh, he has the good fortune through no particular um, uh, work of his own, uh, not deserving, simply the good fortune uh, of having a bumper crop. Um, he also has uh, the very poor fortune of dying before he can enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, well, I w- I've been biting my tongue. I can't help feeling that that in some way the point of this entire parable surely is verse 17. And he said to himself, um, oh, no, no, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Mm. I knew I knew that there was wisdom in always wanting bigger sheds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. No, look, I, look, maybe maybe the moral is in verse 17, but earlier part, and he thought within within himself, what shall I do? Maybe that's the telling question. I've had I've had unreasonable turn of fortune. Well, what should I do? I know there's some people in my street who are starving, um, mm. or uh, there's a good cause. This could, no, I'm going to build a bigger barn. Maybe that's. Maybe that question is a very leading question, um, and uh, yeah, I think I think just to be clear, I think I think I think to be just to be clear, I think the story is saying that being greedy is wrong, morally. It's saying wrong. that very. I think clearly. it is also, yeah, I think it is, but I think it is saying even more clearly that being greedy is silly. Now, um, uh, you could also argue that. Under the ultimate analysis, all wrong things will be shown to be silly, and I, I'd accept that. But he's there's a point in which he he's saying, surely you can see, surely you can see that this attitude, it, it's the message of Ecclesiastes. You know, we're here one day and we're gone the next. Um, surely you can see this vain attitude that you can somehow procure for yourself a comfort you deserve that you know you can just inherit forever and ever. Surely you can see that that's just silly. Like whatever you believe in, you've got to find something better than that. 
But there's some other kinds of silliness that are referred to in Jesus's parables. And I'm thinking of the one where there were some bridesmaids who had not adequately planned for being around as mm. long as they ended up being around. Surely the flip side of this is the person who says, ah, I'm getting a bit old now. I'm not going to be around forever. I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll use up, give away everything that I've got, and then ends up finding that they have been poor stewards because they don't have enough olive oil for their lamp. Mm. I, I think also it's well and good to say, uh, well, um, this, this man was foolish. It also, um, whether or not that is the case, uh, depends to some extent on the construction of your society. Uh, and how it deals with uh, people who have um, unanticipated wealth, um, how it deals with people as they age, um, uh, what you're expected to do to look after yourself, how your society and your family looks after you. Um, all of those things come into play when you're looking at what is foolish and what is prudent. Well, I mean, one of the things that this... I. I feel like this story doesn't have very much to do with the topic we're supposed to be talking about today, um, which is what to do uh, with wealth at, at the end of your life or towards the end of your life or what have you, um, except to state that at any stage of life, covetousness, covetousness I cannot... There you go, you did. Um, ...is is bad. Um, and, you know, I, I, the parables are great. I love parables, but I do feel like for this one, Verse 15 just is sufficient, um, although I do like 14 as well. Um, I'm looking at it in the New King James Version, and verse 14 says, But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Which I, I like. Like, what, mm. what have I got to do with your squabble with your brother um, <laughs> over wealth? I, I couldn't care less. It is a little like that. I mean, you've got to read this parable in the context of what's gone before in order to understand a little about what the point of the parable is. Uh, so the point of the parable is somebody's already died uh, and there's an inheritance that's being withheld, presumably unjustifiably withheld, uh, from the person who's saying, well, tell my brother to give it to me. Um, mm. and, it's, and it's not entirely clear to me who Jesus is directing the parable to, whether he's directing it at the brother who's trying to retain what is unjustly the inheritance or to the brother who is seeking uh, the inheritance as a result of, I mean, it's his father's death. That's something that's unpredictable. Um, uh, it's just come about. He's had the good fortune uh, to lose his father and gain his father's possessions insofar as that can be called good fortune. Um, and Jesus is then addressing that parable, and I'm not sure which brother he's addressing it to. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think it applies to both, yeah. plus all, all of the audience, plus us. Yeah. I mean, that's... <laughs> but the... I mean, I, I think putting it in modern context is, is maybe helpful, you know. Um, to, to, to his questions is, one is, you know, if, if, if I was to win the lottery tomorrow... Um, what would I do with it? How would I use it? You know, I've got a shopping list in my head of stuff I want. I think everybody does that I can't afford at the moment. Um, and then the second question is, um, well, if, if you know, my parents, you know, my, my mother did die and uh, left all, all of her considerable wealth 
um, and that's in air quotes for the listener, um, <laughs> to to my brother, uh, would I would I fight him over it? Would I be would I, what would I do about that? Well, I'm sure How I can't I answer that for for you and your brother, uh, Luke. Um, but you've heard the saying, "Where there's a will, there's a way." Um, of course, the estate lawyers saying is, "Where there's a will, there's a fight." Um, so <laughs> well, that's the thing because we we I mean every time we talk with financial advisors as as a family, it's it's very clear to us that there's a dynamic out there amongst a lot of people where it's really really important to kind of tiptoe around this question of the division of of inheritance. Mm. Whereas for for our fa- I mean to 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 be clear, um, for our family it's 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 just a non-issue. Mm. None of us would contest a will. We really don't. We wouldn't we wouldn't lose our relationships over over. Well, I'm encouraged to hear that. I spent enough time uh uh doing estate litigation to uh, uh always have a degree of circumspection about the mm prospect of no uh, disagreements for a number of reasons. Um, uh, first of all, the division on the part of the uh, deceased is not always an easy thing to do, fairly. Um, mm. It's easy to say, oh, well, it should just be equal um, uh, and uh, leave the good fortunes or the bad fortunes of the uh, uh, various um, potential recipients to fall where they may um but is that really a fair way of doing it if you've got a you know a successful uh independently wealthy beneficiary uh and you've got a um struggling uh battling uh potential beneficiary should you is it fair just to treat them equally and give one uh, jam and cream and the other enough to put some rice on the table in in essence uh, so where's the fairness there? Um, uh, and the second is that when there is a um, a uh, a distinction made and a disparity in the distribution, it is very often taken by the beneficiary as a measure of the value that the beneficiary had in the eyes of the testator. Um, so it's they're, they're really complicated questions, but they all come back to uh, a sense of what do I deserve? Um, how was I valued? Um, it comes back to this sense of self-worth. I, I think, I say always, often it seems to me that that's an issue. Uh, can this discussion reminded me of a story, and I've just spent a few minutes ferreting it out, which I uh, read in... Um, not in my name, is it? The Rabbi Sachs Not in God's, God's name. name. Not in God's name, which is about um, ideologically uh, fueled conflict. Um, but this is a parable that he cites, which has to do with um, a dispute, or at least the, a person in this parable resorts to a metaphor, which I think is really interesting. Uh, so uh, this is the context for the story. An uneasy peace ruled in Jerusalem. Saladin's victory against the Crusaders had cost the Muslims dearly, um, and but they had uh, retained control of the uh, or regained control of the holy city. Um, there was an uneasy peace with Jews, Christians, and the newly victorious Muslims, all suspicious of one another. 
and Saladin, who's Muslim, requests an audience with Nathan, a leading Jewish merchant. And Nathan is very worried. And his worries are well-founded because the Muslim ruler uh, is looking for a gift or a loan from his wealthy Jewish subject, and he doesn't want to openly demand it because that would create strife. And he instead masks his request in the form of a theological question. Uh, your wisdom for repu- your reputation for wisdom is great, said the Sultan. You must have studied the great religions. Tell me, which is best, Judaism, Islam, or Christianity? And the Jewish merchant is on the spot because he knows that the only answer the Sultan wants to hear is Islam. But he's a practicing Jew. He can't he can't say that. So tell us a story. He says, um, uh, he says, let me tell you a story. Uh, in the Orient, in ancient times, there lived a man who possessed a ring of inestimable worth. Its stone was an opal that emitted a hundred colours, but its real value lay in it, in its ability to make the wearer beloved of God and man. The ring passed from father to most favoured son for many generations, until finally its owner was a father with three sons, all equally deserving. Unable to decide which of the three sons was most worthy, the father commissioned a master artisan to make two exact copies of the ring, and then give each son a ring, and each son believed that he alone had inherited the original and true ring. Uh, but instead of harmony, the father's plan brought only discord to his heirs. Shortly after the father died, each of the sons claimed to be the sole ruler of the father's house, each basing his claim to authority on the ring given to him by the father. The discord grew even stronger and more hateful when a close examination of the rings failed to disclose any difference. The dispute among the brothers grew until their case was finally brought before a judge. After hearing the history of the original ring and its miraculous powers, the judge pronounced his conclusion. The authentic ring, he said, had the power to make its owner beloved of God and man, but each of your rings has brought only hatred and strife. None of you is loved by others. Each loves only himself. Therefore, I must conclude that none of you has the original ring. Your father must have lost it and attempted to hide his loss by having three counterfeit rings made, and these are the rings that cause you so much grief. The judge continued, Or it may be that your father, weary of the tyranny of a single ring, made duplicates which he gave to you. Let each of you demonstrate his belief in the power of his ring by conducting his life in such a manner that he fully merits, as anciently promised, the love of God and man. Hmm. Marvellous, said the Sultan. Marvellous, your, your tale set my mind at rest, you may go. And the Sultan relinquishes his claim for any gift or loan from the merchant. Um, and Nathan says, is there nothing else you wanted from me? No, nothing. And then Nathan says, well, may I, then may I take the liberty to make a request of you? My trade has of late brought me unexpected wealth. And in these uncertain times, I need a, a secure repository. Would you be willing to accept my recent earnings as a loan or deposit? Uh, and the Sultan gladly accepted tonight. So the Sultan ends up getting what he wants. And uh, what a beautiful story. Um, there's, a, apart from the fact that it references a, a dispute over a will, there's a deeper connection. Um, there's the attitude of division that the story starts with, the Sultan wishing to draw a distinction between mm. the Muslims. And what the story shows is, uh, in a, the, the correct way, uh, you know the correct way to show that you have the right way of living is to show is to show it, not talk about it. Um, and uh, demonstrably, the accumulation of wealth and greed is is not a way of living that brings you know uh, on the balance of most people's opinion, it's not a good way of living. 
I think one of the messages of the story is that right living is enacted, not abstracted. Hmm. Um, there's and one important aspect about this idea of avoiding greed and living generously in the context of us thinking about moving towards the end of our lives that I think needs to at least be called out. And it's this, it's a very difficult thing to get a balance point on. If you are a person, and I've observed this, um, if you are a person who has cultivated deliberately an attitude of generosity, who doesn't want to be a burden, but rather wants to be a provider for a helper of those around you, it can actually be extremely difficult if you are fortunate or unfortunate enough to live to an age that is old enough that you really genuinely just need others to support you. I've seen I've seen this in a limited number of, of anecdotal examples, and I, I don't know if there's any wisdom to share, but it seems to me something that we need to at least acknowledge if if we're going to wrap this up by by reminding us in our life stage of the importance of thinking generously. I think we need to acknowledge that there are people who reach a stage of life where their role is to receive, no longer to give. And that can be a really difficult transition. Um, well, Christ actually talks about this a lot um, in Matthew 15, where he, the Pharisees have criticized him for not following the law. And he says to them, well, you don't follow the law. Um, the law says to honor your father and mother, but you, you teach people who are planning on giving money towards up the upkeep of their parents. You, you teach them to give it to the church. Huh. And so, listeners, we have a moment of silence. Mm. <laughs> not silence, Ken. Uh, it, not quite silent, the silence because um, uh, our neighbours are getting married on their property and there's music that's loud enough that my microphone will pick it up. Our listeners might have heard faint music in the background. And our neighbours dropped a handwritten note a week in advance into our letterbox to say we're getting married. Um, there'll be music on our property. It'll finish by 11 o'clock. And uh, Melissa and I were thinking, we didn't get around to it, but we, we will still do it. And this is on the subject of generosity. We should buy them a gift. Yeah. yeah. Something, something you know, small and it doesn't have to be flashy, but we, we should do it because we believe in marriage. Mm. Yes. Like that's something that's Congratulations important. Congratulations to them. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they can make as much noise as yeah. they want. Uh, so, uh, which is, which is, I will say, uh, quite a sacrifice for, for me. Um, but <laughs> I do it cheerfully. Yeah. <laughs> there was one other thought that was on my mind, Luke, and I don't know if you're in the right part of the organisation to have any real perspective on this. How Are you aware, how much, how common is it for people to leave money to organizations like ADRA oh, in their will. It's it's uh, not as common as we want it to be. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> because it's it's one of the best sorts of donations as a nonprofit you can receive. Um, and if you can if you can get yourself a, a steady stream stream of bequests mm. is what they're called, or planned giving you know, where you're written into somebody's will, if you get enough of those, it becomes a steady, reliable income stream of, over, you know, a long enough period of time. Some years may go up and down or what have you. Um, but, you know, over a long enough period of time, there's a death rate. And if so many people are dying every year and a certain percentage of them are giving a certain percentage of their money to you every year, it becomes very predictable. Um, mm. And... And, and uh, also they don't uh, contact you later and ask questions about what you're doing with it, which 
That's true. (laughs) Is actually something we do really appreciate. Uh, we actually really appreciate people contacting and, and wanting to know about what's being done. And for those of our listeners who aren't aware, Luke works for Adra. So there you are. Bequests yeah. to Adra. Yeah. It, 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 mm. They are a really, really good source of giving. But I, I And, and we, we advocate for people to consider it. But I don't believe, and I have to be careful because I don't actually work in this area, I don't believe we're ever out there trying to get people to give everything they um we are looking for what people can spare. Mm. You know, there are people out there who have money and they don't, tragically, in a lot of cases, they don't have descent or close family. Um, or, or they have an abundance of money and they want to do something meaningful with it. Mm. Um, and uh, it's an opportunity to do that. I think that's one aspect, Luke, and I like that phrase, to do something meaningful with it. Um, so I think that's one aspect of the... Uh, of this story, uh, this parable, um, uh, to do something meaningful with your, certainly your excess resources. Um, I wonder whether the other element uh, of it might be um, the passivity of the um, protagonist in this story. Um, And I'm thinking now about the parable of the the talents um, and uh, this seems almost to you know, have some allusions to similar things, um, because uh, the although perhaps in a converse way, you know that there's a um, that the people who went out and did things with the money, um, who did things with themselves, um, uh, they were the ones who were commended. The one who was passive and did nothing, who didn't take any risks, uh, who mm. lived a life of taking it easy. Um, uh, rather than of thinking hard and well um, and doing good things and investing, uh, was the one who was criticised in a similar way to what this person was was criticised. And indeed, um, if one goes over a little further in Luke chapter 12 to... Um, well, actually, before I go there, um, it, it reminds me also of the story that we talked about last week, I think, didn't we, about Ahab? Um, did we talk about Ahab last week? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one of the things about Ahab was that when he didn't get his vineyard, um, or Naboth's vineyard, uh, he went home and he sulked and went to bed and he didn't eat. So he did nothing. He just mm. sat around. Um, uh, and the doing nothing, I think, is something that's uh, criticised. Although I think it would be hard to argue that his doing nothing in that instance was morally worse than his wife deciding to oh yeah well look there's a whole uh, uh, come along come along to the sermon tomorrow and we'll have a talk about that story it inspired me um but no i i I think it's a really good point ken and it's a consistent theme that i've been noticing over across many parts of the bible and that we've been looking at quite a lot recently which is that um we're very often called to be proactive you know as in the parable of the talents Mm. um and courageous or risk-taking, um, you know, the, mm. the, the, choice to, the, the choice to do the safe thing or the easy thing, biblically speaking, um, is, is usually wrong in, as the stories go. You know, Abraham, who we looked at recently, was, was uprooted and left everything behind. Unquestionably risky at staying put. Mm. Um, and I think that's actually a very 
necessary message for us these days because what I think it was you can put it you know our, our society's values these days are, are prosperity comfort and and especially safety and we're also very concerned about safety uh, at, 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 when just to be clear we live in the safest society in the safest period of history uh, that has ever existed mm-hmm. and yet we worry yeah. more about safety as a result there's something quite yeah. uh dysfunctional um luke one observation i agree with what you said the sentiment exactly uh, the phrase abraham leaving was unquestionably more risky uh we don't know that we don't know what disaster might have befallen him if he'd stayed and i think that's one of the things that this parable uh, is saying well it's seemingly more risky or um to any normal person it would feel more risky as i think is, well, I think, the no, no, no. I think my original statement stands, Ken, because risk is not the certainty of a disaster. Risk is the likelihood and the severity yeah. of a disaster. My, my comment was, my comment was, this parable parable shows that you can experience disaster at home. Oh, mm. I, I agree. <laughs> with, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, well, so, you can't tell. That, that, you can't that tell make, when the disaster is going to strike. That doesn't make staying at home more risky than leaving. It just means no, you experienced. Something that yeah. perhaps was very unlikely. Yeah. Well, uh, but I think, yeah, well, I don't know, do you? You don't know whether that, on balance... That's the point. Yeah. So the point is not that staying at home is more risky. It's not that... The point is that it is not inherently less risky. Uh, it might be less risky, it might not. There's an uncertainty to life, and our challenge is to find in each moment... You know, your comment, Luke, that you made a few weeks ago has been ringing in my head like a bell when... Um, there was a reference made about uh, making decisions in the present, and you you chipped in to say that actually the present is the only time we can make decisions. And this 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 you know it's very easy to think. Well, what would I do if I had great wealth? Where would I leave it? Well, I don't. So, um, what decision will I make today that will increase the significance and meaning of my life? Mm. Um, and and. There is a bit of a danger to sort of blue sky thinking. Obviously, we have to think ahead into the future. But there comes a sense, you know, when the man says, when the man says, well, I've got a bumper crop, what will I do? Um, That's the exact question. What will you do? What will you do right Mm. now? Mm. Mm. The the parable is bringing us back to the present. It it is. And Cam, there's... I, I fully agree with that sentiment, and I, I, I've, I've recently come across a way of kind of expressing it that I think you'll like. I can't take credit for it, and I don't even remember where it came from. Um, but it, it, goes, it goes something along these lines, um, is that there is, there is risk associated with any decision, including not making the decision, hmm. right? Hmm. Um, there's, there is a risk in doing nothing. The same as there is a risk in doing something. And interestingly, human psychology is very uh, biased towards being afraid of risks involved in doing something, right? Mm. And it's very, we have a blind spot when it comes to the risks involving doing nothing because that instinctively feels safer to us, but it is not necessarily Mm. safer. There are risks involved in any course of that. Um, And there's a great quote from um, Tolkien uh, where... It's 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 very early on in Lord of the Rings, um, and Frodo is asking advice from someone who seems to him to be to be very wise uh, and much more knowledgeable than himself. And, and basically, he gets a response that the the person says, "I'm I'm not going to give you advice because advice is dangerous, even between good friends, um, and all paths may 
I think the exact phrasing is run ill or something on that way. The point being, you can make the correct choice or the right choice or the best choice and still suffer bad fortune. Hmm. You can you can choose the path of minimum risk and still experience risk and failure. Every we we live in a risky world, and there is literally nothing you can do to ever change that. I think one of the I, I want to raise two more things, three actually about about this passage. Um, and the first is that I want to um, give a quote from the Pulitzer Prize nominated novelist Frederick Beekner. Um, and he, there's a little statement that comes from his book Beyond Words. Um, and it says this, here is the world, beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. Now, this doesn't at first seem to be a story about being afraid, worrying, being anxious and about taking risks. But I wonder whether or not it really might be about that. Because um, when we look at uh, the fact that he decided he was going to be passive. When we go back and we look at the question that he asked was this, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. He's worried that he doesn't have sufficient resources to deal with this good fortune that's come about. Um, so he, he doesn't want, so rather than, uh, rather than take a risk, he's going to play it safe. I'm going to build some barns and store things and take it easy. But the very next thing that Jesus, and Jesus said, but but your life comes from you, to, your life's being taken from you tonight. But then the very next thing that Jesus said to his disciples is, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food and clothes. Consider the ravens, etc. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. This person's concern was about whether he has enough storerooms and barns so that he can store his resources and take it easy. Mm. But the birds don't have any storerooms or barns. Uh, They're taken care of. Worrying can't add a single hour to your life. It might be taken from you tonight. Can take a few off you. (laughs) I think there's lots of allusions, unsurprisingly, in this very Mm. next passage uh, to the parable mm. that Jesus gave and uh, Jesus has just stated. And... I, I, th- I think you hit the nail on the head, yeah. Tim, in that I, I've, I've heard it said, and again, I'm, I'm terrible at quoting things because I can never remember where it comes from, but I've heard it said that the basis of all decision-making only really has two, two um, causes. You can either act out of fear or out of love. Everything comes back to that, and if you look at the decision making of, of the guy in the story, it, it actually doesn't it doesn't sound like it, but it actually does come back to fear. I can take it easy because I don't have to worry about having enough because I've I've mm. got all this abundance. But I'm worried and, that I might not be able to store it. So yeah, yeah, that's the so yeah. I'll, I'll 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 solve that problem and then I'll have even less to worry yeah. about. And the parable is pointing out that the ludicrousness of that it doesn't and 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 you know anecdotally from stories of rich people's lives, it does not matter how much wealth you have, it doesn't take your fear and worry away. If wealth is a great source of worry, the more mm. you have, the more you can lose. I wonder whether um, it might be worth then. So the third that was two things: the Beekner quote, the um, the allusion to the parable in the next uh, statement of Jesus, and the third one was the to the the um, the passage in further on in Luke chapter twelve and verse uh, forty eight, 
uh, and the very last sentence. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And for the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. I think that's where we should end. Yeah, um, I think that's a good idea. Uh, thank you to you, our dear listener, for, for taking some time to uh, take part in this discussion. It is a little bit one-sided, uh, but not entirely, because if you have any thoughts, you can email us at the address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. Uh, you can also share this with your friends, if so you wish. And you can also, and please do, join us again next week.